Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Claude Trees. Claude is a partner in Foley's Houston office, and after over 40 years as a litigator in 2016, Claude was appointed to CEO of Gardier Win Sewell LLP. Foley and Gardier combined in 2018, and since that time, Claude has served as Foley's chief administrative partner and is a member of the firm's management team. In this conversation, Claude reflects on growing up in San Antonio, Texas, attending Rice University for undergrad and the University of Texas School of Law. He discusses the many years he spent litigating, his transition into leadership and management roles, as well as gives some really great insight on the business of law and the importance of law students learning about the business of law. Claude also remarks on the five-year anniversary of the Foley-Gardier combination and shares his thoughts on the culture at Foley. Finally, we close out the episode with Claude providing some really important insight on how critical it is for lawyers to be open to change and adapting their practice. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Claude. Claude, welcome to the podcast. I'd like to begin by having you give your professional introduction. Well, thank you, Alexis. I'm really glad to be here. My name is Claude Treese. And I'm a partner at Foley and Larder. I've been a lawyer with Foley and legacy firms that are now part of Foley for over 46 years. It's the only full-time job I've ever had. When I had an active legal practice, I focused on litigation throughout most, but not all, most of my career. I was a litigator, trial lawyer, tried lots of cases. And the last quarter of my career, approximately, I've been primarily involved in firm management, initially at Gardier Lynn Sewell, and then it fully after our merger uh, five or so years ago now. Thank you so much for that, Claude. I look forward to unpacking all of that. But before we do, let's start somewhat at the beginning, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up? I was born at the Army Hospital in San Antonio, Texas. My dad was in the Army. And so that's where I was born. Uh, he was quickly stationed uh, over in France. So I lived the first three years of my life in France. I have absolutely zero recollection of it. Not one second. Uh, we moved back to San Antonio when I was about three and I lived there. I grew up in San Antonio. So I'm a San Antonio boy, San Antonio native. And uh, that's what I consider my home city to be. That is funny to hear that you spent the first three years abroad in France. You wonder, is there any any of that early programming? But you're like, no. I took, I took, well, this is skipping ahead, I know, but I took French in college thinking, oh, it's all going to come back to me and it's going to be a snap. Worked really hard and I barely made a B. So there you go. And it didn't. I'm glad, I'm glad you tested it though. But I'd also like to hear a little bit about, so growing up in San Antonio, let's say that I was to find you in late elementary school, early middle school. What sort of kid were you? What were you into? You know, those were some actually some amazing years. I was uh, like most kids. I was really, really interested in sports. I love sports. My skill set was nowhere near my interest. <laughs> so I liked it a lot more than I was good at it. But I did love sports. But I was pretty bookish, too. I liked 
school, I did, and uh, tried hard to do well. And uh, I had uh, other interests. My mom was the choir director at the church, and so she pushed me in the direction of music. And so took piano lessons for uh, for several years when I was when, during that time frame that you're talking about. And then, you know, I just I paid a lot of attention to what was going on in the world because there was so much going on. You know, here we are in the 2020s, which wasn't your question. And boy, is there a lot going on right now with so many things that have been happening. But the 60s, you know, we could talk about that a little bit. That was a decade that, where that could be a multi episode, uh, multi part podcast transformative. Well, and I think that experience is actually similar. I had Ed Baxa on a few episodes back and you know, similar-ish time frame. But I think in particularly like the late 60s, 70s in Washington, D.C. So definitely reflected a bit on that. And you mentioned sports. You mentioned books. You mentioned piano. I, too, played piano growing up. I remember I expressed the tiniest bit of interest. And before I knew it, my mom, mom was like, you have piano lessons <laughs> and you're going to go for the next decade. So I could definitely relate to that. Although I'm curious, you mentioned your mom. So was your father still active military when you were back in San Antonio? No, he uh, retired from the military uh, after uh, I think it was two tours of duty. And then he uh, he was he was a self-made man if there ever was one. He came from the school of hard knocks in Little Rock, Arkansas. He eventually worked his way uh, up into being involved in the truck industry. So I grew up with him working in the truck industry. And my mom at home, she worked at a bank for many years. So we were uh, we were sort of a hardworking, you know, typical hardworking middle class family. Yeah. And I have to ask any siblings. I have one sister. OK. It's always interesting to hear how many siblings, if any of the birth order stuff is is true. I am the oldest child. Well, my mom was one of seven kids and I am the oldest child oldest grandchild uh, on both sides of the family. My mom's and dad's side. And that's got to be over. I don't even remember anymore, but 25-ish grandkids. You know, That's a lot of cousins. Yeah, and, and I was the first one to come along. So there oh you go. Goodness. So let's move forward a little bit. Talk to me about high school. I'm going to guess maybe you're still bookish and still into sports. But what was, were there any part-time jobs that were of interest? I always forget to ask. But I, when I remember, I like to ask that. But then I want to get into that, your thought process going into to college. Yeah. So uh, in, in high school, I, uh, I yes, I was still bookish and I, I worked hard and I did I did well. I had uh, goals in terms of colleges that I wanted to go to. But yeah, I worked too. my uh, my first job ever. I was a dishwasher at a restaurant uh, making a dollar twenty five an hour and very, very glad to do it. And then eventually I, I got some other jobs in high school. They were part time doing parts chasing for another trucking company. Uh, using my dad's connections to help me uh, find a job and did that and, you know, help help make ends meet and have a little money to buy records and uh, other things that probably were not very good expenditures, but I enjoyed them. Well, I like asking that question because when I'm talking to law students or those early in their career, but especially the law students, they're not quite sure how earlier work experience fits in. And often, they won't even necessarily want to talk about it because they only want to say the thing that's like I was a an intern at you know in court or, or for for a um, judge, but I've found particularly on this show that all those experiences ultimately are are useful and do do translate. And I also like to show that you know Claude, I think you mentioned you've been practicing for over forty years. You had there was a time before you were a licensed attorney, 
That's right. Uh, and I'll, I'm going to tell you a story about what you just said, because it's interesting. Uh, and it gets into lots of things we're going to talk about later as it relates to firm culture. But so, you know, here I was in law school. and I, I know we'll, we'll come back and we'll cover what you want to cover about. But uh, so I was in law school and it was time to interview and, you know, go to the visits for the fir- at the firms, the big firms in Texas was, you know, what I was interested in at the time. And so I did my resume and I just chronologically put all the jobs that I've had, you know, dishwasher, parts chaser, eventually did some clerking, clerk type work at a, another company. And so that's what I had done, you know, and so I put that on my resume. And so I went to visit uh, an office of a, of a, of a big firm. And I finished uh, my, my interviews and I thought it all went well. And, you know, I get, got an offer from him and all that. But as I was walking out the door, sort of my mentor for the day, he was t- escorting me to the elevator. He said, well, really enjoyed having you around today. But oh, can I talk to you about your resume? I really think you ought to take out this part about dishwasher and parts chaser. And I thought to myself, this isn't the place for me. That's where I come from. You know, that's I, I was proud that I had done that work, you know, when I was in high school and I had, you know, made my little contribution and that I had been out there in the world and and not exactly made a living, but had you know, again made my contribution. And so, yeah, I think that stuff's important. It is what what we did to get to where we got. And uh, so anyway, I just thought that was a funny story. No, it's a really interesting story. And also. We are client facing. And I think it's really hard to forget that or easy to forget that we are a professional services firm. We're client service, customer service focused. We don't use the words customer service, of course. We have different, but it's the same thing. And I think experiences that help you learn about how people work and care about, you know, customer service actually do translate. Um, and we don't we don't say it plainly that often, but they do. They worked hard, they tried hard. They were doing what they could. I think all that's important. Absolutely. As opposed to, you know, I was on the, the club lacrosse team. Well, that's great, too. You know, that's great, too. But and, and all should be considered at all matters. <laughs> right. Well, and so tell me a bit. Um, you touched on law school, you know, spoiler alert. You, you went to law school. But tell me about going to college, your thought process, um, where you went and how you decided where you're going to go. Yeah, I, I grew up, uh, as I said, in San Antonio. And so Rice University, I think it's generally considered to be, you know, one of the preeminent, if not the, the preeminent school uh, in Texas. I don't know what it's rated nationally, but and, it, and it's a small school. When I went there, it was like 2,500 undergrads. I think it's maybe twice that now they're trying, they're growing. But it was small, but really, really highly rated academically. And so that was where I wanted to go. I kind of set my heart that, that that's where I wanted to go. And uh, and so I applied there. I applied to some other places too, uh, but I got into Rice. And so that I was just thrilled and I'm still thrilled. I mean, it was <laughs> it was the perfect place for me to have gone. And I really enjoyed my experience there. Uh, could, couldn't have been a more uh, perfect setting for me in terms of the academics, the camaraderie with other kids, all of the things that, that just contribute to the, to the college experience. What was your major? I majored in sociology. Okay, yeah, say, say more about that. What was, what was the thought process? What was the plan? Yeah, and so this gets back to that thing about the 60s, you know, with all of the things that happened. And, you know, we don't have to go through, you know, the whole litany with from JFK through, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and RFK, the war, the anti-war movement, the, the, you know, the civil unrest that happened in the 60s. Uh, but then on top of that, then you have the space program. 
and you have the Beatles, you know, and you have the sort of the cultural revolution. And so I was interested in that. I was interested in public and social issues. And I think that was uh, largely because of what was going on, you know, that I'd seen and that had been so uh, formative and transformative in the 60s. So it sparked my interest in public and social issues, in politics, you know, in our government and in our legal system. And so I went off to Rice and, and, and majored in sociology, took a lot of other courses, too. Uh, but I was really pleased to be able to, to do that at Rice with great professors and around other kids who were really challenging uh, and exciting to be around. It was just a great experience. Did you know that law school was the next step when you decided to focus on sociology? And if not, where when does law school come into play? I did. Uh, I, I just... I never thought that there was anything else that I would do that I would find particularly something that I would want to devote my career to. Sure, I could have gone to grad school and you know made something of that, but I was just always focused on law school. That's that's what I wanted to do. And so uh, when I, you know, when I was thinking about the courses that I would take, they didn't have a pre-law program at UT. I mean at Rice, but they had. Uh, they had courses that were oriented around learning what you, you know, what you could that what there wasn't part of pre-law, but that still had legal components to it. So you could learn about that. And so I did. I took economics and history and, you know, all the types of things that would provide the sort of the, the precursors. You mentioning sociology was a little bit surprising, but as you described it, I was thinking to myself, this is sounding like somebody who's pre-law. That's what, it, as you described it, it, it sounds like you're kind of creating your own pre-law curriculum. So what was the process then for determining where you were going to go to law school? And then where did you go to law school? Yeah, I and so I applied, as I recall, I only applied to two places. I, I applied to the University of Texas, which has been, you know, I, I guess in a way like Rice, I mean, highly regarded in Texas. But, you know, Rice doesn't have a law school. So, uh, you know, the best law school in Texas. Sorry for all my very, very good friends who went to U of H and SMU and Baylor. Those are great law schools, too. Uh, South Texas, great law schools. But, I, you know, I was, I was really interested in going to, to, to UT. I also applied to Duke just because I knew that it was a great school. And uh, I thought, you know, it's up there. It's kind of toward Washington, D.C. Who knows what I might do? And I did get into both schools, and so I had to decide, and it was economics. You know, yes. Duke, you know, I don't know what I could have been able to do in terms of loans and scholarships and all the rest of it. UT was pitifully cheap back then. I don't know what it is now, but it was, gosh, I mean, hundreds of dollars per, per either per year or per semester. And that was the game changer for me is, that, well, that, that was where I was going to go. And, you know, great school, not very expensive. Uh, right here in Texas, great stepping stone for getting a job with a great firm in Texas. And so, you know, that was a pretty easy decision. Although I, I, the, on the other side of the coin, I really put my heart into getting into Duke. I thought it would be really cool. And when I got in, it was tough. It was, it was a tough decision. It's a tough decision. But what you're saying about the economics, I mean, that remains true now, even I'd say in a much more magnified or amplified way, because another thing we often don't talk as openly about is just the realities of what makes sense financially. And people don't always necessarily pick schools based on 
well, you know, there's the highest rank and there's the one that makes the most sense in terms of what, what I can afford or perhaps I can avoid law school loans. I know I mentioned Ed Baxa before. Similar, we talked about this and he said, I think it, I think he went to UVA and whatever amount he quoted what for the amount of tuition, I I, I had to acknowledge that probably hurt some of the listeners' hearts oh, <laughs> to hear yeah. it compared to now. Oh, I don't know what UT is now and I have really have no idea what the private schools are, but uh, I certainly understand as we hear about, you know, with associates coming through and having these big loans and it's, it's, it's a sizable investment. So then how was it you, you go to law school? Was there an adjustment for you at all that you can recall in terms of how the academics are a bit different or just what was that like? Very much recall it. So at Rice, again, I, I think maybe UT, UT Law School and Rice University were about the same size. UT Law School might have been a bit smaller, but the whole undergraduate student body at Rice was 2,500, and UT Law School, I don't know what it was, 1,500 or so, you know, pretty big for a law school, it right? Is. Yeah. And, uh, and I've probably got those numbers wrong, but it's in that ballpark. And at Rice, you know, you have sociology majors and history majors and this, and science engineering was, a, and it is a big thing at Rice. And so everybody is, just interested in everybody doing well and having a great experience. You're not competing with other people to, to achieve a certain result. It's all, you know, we're just there and we're in this environment and it's this academic setting with a lot of camaraderie. And it was just really motivating and exciting. You can, you can I guess, tell from listening to me that it really did mean a lot to me. I thought, this is Claude Treese, I thought law school was more competitive. I thought it was more about I need to make the best grade I can possibly make. It's not dog eat dog, but I need to make the best grade I can possibly but make. When there's a when there's a curve, it kind of is because yeah. it's saying even if all of you give me A plus answers, I have to decide that one of them's a C. <laughs> yeah, 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 and that that's actually I, I did some adjunct teaching at University of Houston Law School years later. And so we can talk about that in a while if you want to, but uh, just kind of the grading process and what all goes into that. But yeah. And so I loved the students at the law school and, you know, I'll, I'll keep up with them. I'll see emails about what they've done. I'll think, wow, what an accomplished group of people I was around who've gone on to do all these amazing, great things. So they were amazing, incredible people, but it was still a pretty competitive setting. And the academics were hard. You know, it was it was hard to do all that reading. You know, if you wanted to compete and, and you know, be at, you know, the top X percent or whatever, you had to work hard. And, uh, and and you had to really, really work hard when it came time to finals and study and be ready. You know, it comes down to that one that one exam, you know, that's that's really a major adjustment for a lot of people. And then also I mean, I've I've seen how the. Legal education has changed in the, I think I'm hitting 17 or 18 years since I graduated from law school, but there are still some things that I think remain the same, regardless of, you know, if you graduated last year or 30 years ago. And I also like to hit on that because I think it's validating for students just to know that there are certain parts that remain a challenge. I think for most people, I'll tell you on this podcast, I've had maybe two of our lawyers who are like, oh, law school was a breeze. Um, And when they say that, I'm always like, I wish you hadn't maybe said that. No. Well, let me just be very clear. 
for me, law school was not a breeze. <laughs> there you go. But did you, in law school, did you know that litigation was where you were heading? And I guess now we're transitioning to the graduating from law school. You mentioned you were a longtime litigator. How did you decide that was your practice area or going to be, or how did that come to be? Yeah, I, di I did not know that I was going to be a litigator. I thought that I probably was going to be. That's where I was oriented. You know, when I did my summer clerkship uh, at a big firm, I, I looked in that area, but I also looked in, in, in non-litigation areas as well. And then that's when I decided, yeah, I think I want to start out in litigation. And so that's what I did. Now, you haven't asked this question. I'll, I'll get into this. Uh, it's probably coming along here pretty soon. So I clerked like like uh, many of my friends did in law school who were sort of following the same path that I was. Clerked at a real big firm in Houston, one of the big prominent uh, Houston firms, not the one that asked me about the dishwasher, but another one. And I got to the end of my clerkship. You're going to like this, I think. Uh, I decided, I don't think I'm ready to go to work at a big firm. And I did. That's unexpected. I did not expect you to say that. But go yeah. On. And there was a firm uh, called Sewell and Riggs. So, you know, that Foley merged with Gardeer Wynn Sewell. So there was a firm called Sewell and Riggs, which later in the 90s merged with Gardeer Wynn to reform Gardeer Wynn Sewell. Uh, Sewell and Riggs had like 20 lawyers. I was the 21st lawyer. But it was an exciting uh, group of people. Uh, Mr. Sewell and Mr. Riggs were more senior in their careers, but the people who were really running the firm and the dynamic members of the firm were in their late 30s, 40, you know, when I started at, at, at Sewell and Riggs. And so it was a great, great setting. They had great clients, great practice. And because it was so small, I got thrown into the fire right away and got to participate, get hands on, you know, go do all the things that people want to do. And so I had that opportunity at Sewell and Riggs. And so I did. And Sewell and Riggs turned out to be. And we recruited with the big firms and we got great people. We have people, you know, here still in Houston who I, I wouldn't want to leave anybody out. But, uh, you know, Daniel Cohen, Mike Rogers, Randy Jones, uh, several of us, you know, started at Sewell and Riggs and, you know, had other opportunities. But uh, but wanted to go there because it was started. And, I mean, started and effectively stayed. Like you said, there's been a few yeah. name changes, a few changes to names, but it's that same. The the DNA of that that firm is yeah. still yeah. still present. Um, although I do want to touch on. So you summered at a firm that was bigger. Decided this wasn't the ideal experience for me. And then did you get connected with Sewell and Riggs as a a three L, or did you figure it out during that that summer? Actually, as a three L, one of my friends uh, had clerked there. And, and new people there and and was talking them up. And so I interviewed with them and uh, I uh, had a great interview, but it was it's tough, you know, to make a decision based on that. But it was because the firm you know, it was 20 lawyers. And so you go to the interview and then you do the dinner and, you know, the things that they do, that we still do with, you know, with all the recruits. And so I was probably around virtually every lawyer in the firm over a couple of days. And, you know, continued to have conversations. I talked even to the people uh, at the firm that I had clerked at because I was having a difficult time making the decision. And I told them that I was interested in Sewell and Riggs. And they said, that's a great firm. They had friends, you know. So some of the people at Sewell and Riggs had been alumni with other big firms in Houston. And so it became easier and easier for me to make that decision. I just thought it was the right thing for me, uh, just for me, you know, at that time. Well, and I think it, it speaks a lot towards 
being at a firm that you feel comfortable with, you know, whether, you know, work-wise, culture-wise. I know we're, we're definitely going to talk more about that and unpack a bit about um, Foley's culture. I, I do think there's probably a law student listening who's like, wait, so you had a job and then you decided to pick a different job. But I do think it's so important that you're you're thoughtful and you know, for many people, that first firm would have been great and they would have started there. But you are absolutely able <laughs> to really consider whether or not you're, you know, comfortable or if there's other options out there while you're assessing where you're going to start your start your career. So I think that's a really interesting example. And I can't even put exactly my finger on it, you know, mm-hmm. about why I made the decision. And I did I didn't make the decision. I'm not going to go to work at the firm I'm going to work at. I made the decision of, gosh. They're saying this exciting stuff about Sewell and Riggs. Let me go find out about that. And I went through this process with a lot of conversations and ultimately made that decision. Yeah. So you start there. And for me, the challenge with you is, you know, to thoughtfully cover 46 years or so in the next 30 minutes. Right. <laughs> so let's I'd love to get some reflections, though, on the early days, you know, as a junior lawyer, figure, figuring things out. What was that? What was that like for you? And maybe there's advice that you or things you learned that that you want to share but just reflections on the early days of practice the firm was was so patient with me because i was i was really curious about different areas and so i started out in litigation but they had other practices as well that i was interested in and so they allowed me to do things in other areas i mean i did some work in real estate i did some work in banking I did a little bit of, of, tran- of pure M&A transactional type work, but not ver- really very much of that. And so I got to see what that practice was like. And and it was very, very helpful. And I just can't thank <laughs> Sewell and Riggs and, you know, for being so patient with me and allowing to have those opportunities. And so I got to do that. My emphasis was always in the litigation area and it evolved certainly in that direction. And that's where, you know, after you know, a certain number of years. That's that was that was what I did, and you know, got involved in the client relationships and so forth, and and then you know, get the opportunity to actually go try some cases. You know, as a second chair, and then as a first chair, and I fell in love with that. I mean, I did love that. You know, there are parts of litigation practice that probably even litigators would admit are maybe not their most favorite part. You know, the knocking it around on some of the ugly discovery and so forth is maybe not everybody's you know most favorite cup of tea but you know the other parts of it going down there for a big hearing in a big case or a trial you know picking a jury uh, cross-examining the other side's key witness doing the opening statement doing the closing all of that I, i really like and then of course they're sitting around waiting for the verdict which is uh one of the most interesting things in all of uh legal practice you're just sitting there watching those 12 people go in and out for their breaks wondering what it is that they're thinking and waiting on the outcome as you were describing some of your favorite parts i i thought to myself i think for some of the litigators or trial lawyers there's a little bit of adrenaline and the performance that's happening but there's also a little bit of you're you're in you're in battle you're in the theater of battle when you're when you're in court and i was definitely picking up on some of that as you were describing it and for the law students listening in particular i'll often say when you look back cuz right now they might not know what they want to do but when they look back they'll probably see that they actually had some leanings they just didn't realize what those meant right cuz so for me i practiced i was litigator for about 8 years m and I, I just, my nose would kind of turn up and be like, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> like, 
it's just it's just not for me. But I didn't realize that until I could look back and tell you, oh, I clearly had an affinity for litigation. And Claude, yeah, you and it, and it doesn't have to be litigation, you know, it well, could be whatever tax. it is, you yeah. know, whatever it is, it could be that, oh, wow, uh, let's just say it's tax, you know, and they understand the inner workings of all that and why it's really, really important to, you know, use this structure and to negotiate these terms because it has these very, very important implications. And it really matters to them a lot and, and, and makes them feel really fulfilled to work through those issues and achieve uh, a great result for the client that the, the client may not have even known they needed to follow that path without that really good counsel and advice. Absolutely. And you said some keywords. You said the word fulfilled. You didn't say the words curiosity, but I think to know all the ins and outs, it's usually a practice area you're naturally interested and curious about. Right. And I think that can feel like a tall order. You know, it's just like, oh, I'll pick something. If it's drudgery, that's fine. But what I've learned from our lawyers is it's actually not fine. I think most people I've had on genuinely have a passion for what they do, which might elicit an eye roll, but that's how you keep doing it for 30, 40 plus years mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is you legitimately enjoy at least aspects of it. So that's kind of what you're shooting for. Yeah. One of my favorite expressions uh, or, or things that I heard said over the years, because I felt this when I, and I could have easily you know, stuck my foot in, in, in my mouth uh, the way this person did. It wasn't exactly sticking his foot in his mouth, but this is true. So, when you're doing litigation, you, you work with people, you know, you're learning about, a, you know, whatever it is, a manufacturing process or, you know, a business or, or, or an industry, whatever it is that's involved in litigation and you work with people. And, and, and so I heard this, this whole crusty litigation. Yeah, the great thing about it is you get to work with people. And so there was a transaction lawyer in the firm. He said, well, Bankers are business are people too, and the people that I represent are people too. I work with people too. Uh, it's just you do litigation and I do transactional work, but it's but it's all working with people to help to help understand. Well, not to help understand, but to understand what their needs are, what their goals are, and to help them achieve those goals. And that's true whether it's litigation, tax, real estate, transactional, whatever it is. So learning that, I think, is, is, is an important thing that, you know, what you're really doing here in whatever context it is, you're helping people achieve their goals. Yep. Achieve goals and solve problems. That's really what's happening, which sounds so simple. And some is like, oh, maybe that's so obvious. I don't know if it was that obvious to me when I first started practicing. I don't think I had that high level understanding. No, I don't think so. I think that's something that you what, what happens is you're doing it. And so that's kind of, you kind of naturally are doing it. And then you'll hear a discussion like the one I was just describing to you. And then you then we get involved even in things like strategic planning and deciding, you know, how we formulate these core values, clients first and so forth. And you do some serious thinking about, well, what are our core values and what, what should our core values be? And so it helps you actually intellectualize uh, something that maybe you, you don't intellectualize until you get there and actually go through that process. Yes, I'm doing so much nodding right now. The listeners can't see us, but they should. my head is just bobbing back and forth nodding. Um, well, and I know you mentioned, so you spent many, many years as a litigator, but at some point you started transitioning more so into law firm management, law firm leadership. Um, we have a whole lot of current litigators that bully, some of which have been on the show. So for you, Claude, I want to pivot now and talk about that transition the roles you've held, and then like we keep teasing, we're going to dive into some discussing Foley culture and things that we want people to know about this firm. But so when did that start happening in your career where you started taking on leadership 
roles. Yeah, and what happened, so we did the merger between Sewell and Riggs and Gardier in 1995. And Gardier had a managing partner and then a, a new managing partner came on board. And somewhat similar to what happened with Foley when Foley and, and uh, Gardier merged, and so we became so much bigger. Well, when Gardier and Sewell and Riggs merged, they were a lot bigger. And so uh, another a partner at the firm went into a role that they created because they just needed more management in place to deal with all of the things that they were to deal with. And he was the chief operating partner. And we had uh, an executive partner in each office. And so that was ongoing. And then at, at, at some point, the executive partner in the Houston office retired. And I guess I must have been uh, in my early 50s at about that time and had been around for a while and, and had good relationships with all the people in Texas. And so the, the executive partner role was not a full-time management role. It was, uh, you know, you still did a whole, whole, whole lot of billable work. And so I moved into that role. And then the, the, this, this role that I tried to describe a minute ago of chief operating partner, who was a lawyer in Dallas, he retired. And so we needed to have a new chief operating partner. I had been sort of, you know, learning the ropes uh, as the executive partner in Houston. The thinking was, that, hey, it would be good because, you know, Gardier was a firm that had, at the time, let's say we had 275 lawyers and there was 175, 200 in Dallas and 75-ish, you know, in Houston. So it would be good, possibly, for the chief operating partner to be based in Houston. A lot of trips to Dallas, a lot of traveling to Dallas back and forth. And so I was interested in it. It seemed like it's sort of a next logical step if I was going to, you know, not just kind of be half and half like I'd been as, as, as the Houston executive partner, but go full time into it. And so I did. And uh, and I became the chief operating partner. And then we had evolution over a period of time. And in the mid 2010s, I actually became uh, there, were, there was a new managing partner at Gardier and I became the CEO. And so I was the CEO at uh, Gardier during the time leading uh, up to the merger with Foley. All right. So starting with you talking about chief operating into CEO, this is another thing that I think um, those early in their career, law students that realize law firms are businesses. And when you hear the word, when I hear the word operating, I think of all of the things that are relevant to running this you know, organization. But could you reflect a little bit on that? Because I think the sort of business of law, the, the some of the big things we have to consider to keep a law firm running as, you know, and now, you know, Foley, we have a COO, we also have a C, CEO, and you had essentially roles similar to both um, at Gardier. Just re- reflections on that, the, the business side of keeping these big firms moving. Yeah, and, and that's a great question. I we, we actually did not have a COO at Gardier. We had an executive director who did a lot of those functions within the, the Chief operating partner, me, uh, had did some of the functions that probably you would think of as being a COO type thing now. It's just because of the size and the structure of the firm. And so, yes, I, uh, you get very, very much involved in the business side of it. And I actually, uh, two or three years, I gave a presentation at UT Law School about this. And, it, and, it was, and I think the students really enjoyed hearing about it. And, it, you know, kind of the notion you know, uh, you, you know how you always sort of have a buzzword at the beginning of a presentation that you kind of come back to your theme over the course of many, many topics that you can cover when you talk about business, whether it's billable hours or you know hourly rates or calculation of profit, you know, revenue, realization, all those things. And so you intake, conflicts, all of those things are, are, are part of 
part of the operations that we have to pay very careful attention to. And the notion is we're in business too. And so, uh, you know, I would say that. And, I, and, and so, for example, it can be, it can be in the context of uh, intake. And, and let's say you have a situation where under the rules, you know, you need to go to a client and say, this is not related to, we're not going to be on the other side from you, but, but we need for you to consent to us being involved in the representation of, you know, client X over here on this other matter. And those can be delicate conversations. And you don't just say it this way, but the notion that you're getting across to the client is we're in business too. And you want your law firm to be successful. You want uh, your lawyers to have opportunities to learn more about the industry. And here is another matter that we're going to be involved in. And it's, it's not going to, we're not going to be adverse to you, but, it, but, but it's something that's important for the firm. And we'd like for you to agree to it. And you, and you can have a very fruitful, productive conversation with the client, you know, as opposed to it being something that's kind of us against them because it's not. And, and so you're just getting across this notion that, yes, we are in business. And that's why so many of the things that we do kind of have that business component to them. You know, we are a profession. You know, I'm never going to give up on that. I mean, the law is a profession and we have these ethical duties, fiduciary duties and all the rest of it. And those are crucially and critically important to being lawyers. But when you're an 1100 lawyer law firm and have the revenue that we have, you're in business, too. And you you have to approach it like that because you want the business to be successful. That's how you attract great lawyers. And then. With your great lawyers, you attract great clients, you attract great professional non-lawyers to be part of your firm. So you have to focus on the business side of it so that you can get the best people. Very much so. I often say or I often tell our more junior lawyers, there's a steep learning curve when you first start practicing. It almost goes straight up for a couple of years before it starts leveling off a little bit. But for those who find themselves, especially in large law firms, in addition to learning how to practice, and I don't, I don't want to overwhelm anyone. I think they're well served by understanding this. The firm is a business and learning a little bit about how it works, because I think some of the more common issues we'll run into, particularly with junior associates, I think are often related to them not appreciating that. And one big thing I think of is, for example, time entry. Exactly. Why are <laughs> these people beating me up about time entry? You know, why are they doing that? Well, there's an answer to that question. And it, I do. Th- I agree with you. It's very important because the, you, you just, they just come in and somebody says whip and somebody says AR and somebody says the billing cycle. And how would you know unless somebody sits you down and says, look, this is how it works. And so, uh, you know, we give presentations like that I, to our summer associates and to our first year associates because it's important for them. Oh, this is how the puzzle fits together so that we can be the successful law firm that were what caused me to want to come to work here in the first place, right? Yes, and you threw out a couple of acronyms. So just in case listeners not sure, WIP, I believe is work in progress, AR is accounts receivable. And I think when you first started a firm, especially the big ones, and if you're on, um, and our stuff isn't usually tend to be staffed, you know, with a, a ton of people, but matters that feel sort of large, you're on a discreet little piece of it, you're forgetting that what you did will eventually get billed to a client. It's not merely an academic ex- exercise. So could you go ahead and enter that time so we actually can build the client instead of you doing it a month late? <laughs> yeah, there is, a, there, is a, there is a cycle. You do the work on, you know, whatever the, today's date's April the 20th. And so we look, it goes into, you know, our bill that gets pre- prepared at the end of April. And then it gets sent out to the client in May. And hopefully they pay it in June. 
And so 60 days from the time that you did that work, if everything goes really well, we get paid. So that's why it's important to do all that. Back to the, if everything goes really well, but then if you waited and then you forgot time and then all sorts of things that I just, I tell associates over and over, I could just rant on this for days, Klaus, trying not to, but well, these, do keep, it doesn't do, matter. It, it doesn't matter how good you are. Your work can be impeccable. The partners do not like that they are chasing you for time. You just got downgraded majorly, no matter how great the work you're doing is. So there's a, there's a lot to learn there, but I do think um, those early in their career would be well served by having curiosity about how the firm works as a business. And I think that interest is noticed that partners are like, oh, you view this as, you know, as a you're a member of the business as well and you care. And it just can actually create, I think, camaraderie and a, a additional respect there. But I want to transition a bit because we've talked about roles that go into management of law firms. And you've touched a few times on the merger. So it was just about five years ago. And I think by the time this publishes, it'll be a few months past the five-year anniversary of the combination of Gardier and Foley. But I would love to get some reflections on that. And then I think that'll get us into the talking a bit about Foley now, Foley culture. Yeah, yeah. So the combination, it was really hard work. And not because of any uh, issues with, with the two firms, but you just think about it. you're combining, you know, what was then, I guess Foley was 650, 700 lawyers, Gardier was 250, whatever we were at the time. Two firms, you know, their combined revenue was gonna be, uh, you know, right after the combination, I guess it was, you know, in the $850 million range. Two big businesses are being combined. And then on top of that, they're law firms. And so you have all of the, issues with conflicts, working through all of that with respect to legacy clients of the two firms. In our situation, we had two different fiscal years. And so we had to work through the challenges of not just coordinating the fiscal years, but then the implications that that had for compensation and timing of payment of compensation, timing of, and how to even determine compensation in the first year or two or three. And so we had to go through, you know, all of those issues. And, and we did it and we got through all of that. And, and then you're working really hard to keep everybody interested in doing the transaction and, and to coming on board with the combined firm. And then you completely turn your focus to integration because, OK, we finally worked through all the issues. We've got it documented. We've picked an, an effective date. We're going to go on that date. Now we have to make it be successful. And the Really, really great thing about about really both firms. But, you know, Foley, you know, did a fantastic job of recognizing the importance of this early on. And that was integration. And, and, you know, integration, we're talking about people getting to know each other. We're talking about people getting to understand who are the clients, what's the expertise, who are the people at the firm, how can we work together to, to do the things that we want. To be one firm. Yeah, to be one firm. And we started on that before the merger, uh, knowing that, you know, if it didn't happen, then, well, we've done all that hard work, but, but it, it, you know, we needed to set the stage for it. And then after the merger, we worked on it really, really, really hard and continue to do so. You know, I think I would say we continue to do so, although I think we have largely, you know, integrated the two firms. I do think we think of ourselves as one firm now. We don't think of ourselves at all as two legacy firms. But that's because people wanted to do that. They wanted to to achieve the advantages of doing the combination. And and so a lot of work was put into that. 
A lot of work was put into the cultural side of it as well, uh, getting people to get to know each other and to understand, uh, you know, the, the people in the different cities and, and to understand, you know, how, how important the core values were to the, the, whole, the firm as a whole and how having that in place would provide the whole basis for us to have a really strong culture uh, that supported all the firm going forward. And the other thing that I like to talk about a lot is two words that mean a lot to me are mindfulness and relationships. And to me, mindfulness is, you know, it's not just doing things intentionally. It's doing things thoughtfully and thinking about what your goal is, thinking about what the effect of what you're doing is. And, and so just being mindful about what you're doing and what you want to achieve. And then when you talk about culture, you're talking a lot about the relationships between the people, creating positive relationships between the people. And again, it's not just the lawyers, it's the lawyers, it's all the professional non-lawyers and creating really strong relationships among that group so that they, you know, we really do work together as one firm and collaboratively for our clients first, as we say, is our very first core value. And so we really do do that. And we, and we've worked hard. We continue to work hard to do that. And that impresses me that, that our CEO and chair and our managing partner and all the other leadership people, management committee, department chairs, that's been a, a, a prime motivating goal from day one uh, since the combination. And it's succeeded. You know, it's a, it's, it is one firm and it's a great firm. I recall being really impressed by everything and a little bit of an outsider perspective because having summered at Foley Chicago back in 2006 when Foley was that 600 or so person law firm, um, you know, went and did other things, practiced other places before I returned. By the time I was interviewing for this role, I think you were probably about 18 months post uh, post combination. But when I had summered, um, Foley Chicago footprint was broadened, I'd say early 2000s by a merger with a firm called Hopkins and Sutter. And five years after that, there were, I could still feel, even as a summer associate, that there was a little bit of still some aftershocks. And, you know, this is the humble view of a summer associate that was here for three months. But just, you know, when the CEO came and there were discussions, you could kind of tell there were still some Hopkins people and some Foley people. Um, and I still think that likely went well for Foley. And hopefully no one calls me because I'm commenting on it 20 years later. But I think in, in contrast, I never felt anything like that after I started at the firm, closing in on what, 18 months or maybe closer to two years after the Gardier combination, because it seems like even though there's a ton of work to bring two large organizations together, there were so many complementary things happening in terms of the geographic footprint. Um, we're we're going to say a little bit of specific things about bully culture, but how you how you do business, you know, how you conceive of those relationships, what you value in your attorneys, and I think fundamentally, really viewing the importance of people, and that and lawyers being kind of them, you know, this is a, the buzz buzzword is you know full selves or authentic selves, but it seems like there were definitely values or major values alignment between between the firms. I think that's right, and also one of the things that 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 both uh, Gardier and Foley had said before the merger is that we want to adopt best practices. You know, we're, we're not going to come in and say, okay, we did the merger. Now this is how we do things. Either way, you know, we weren't going to say in Gardier in Texas, well, this is how we used to do things and this is how we're going to do them. And Legacy Foley wasn't going to say, well, this is how you do things at Foley. It really was what are best practices. And, and you know, I think we've made some improvements 
in, in lots of areas, you know, even whether it's finance or, you know, we had some ideas, I think, related to intake and, you know, the engagement letter and, you know, various things that we've talked about over the over the course of the years. And, and then, then just some things that we do, like, for example, as I know you well know, the MLK event. You know, which which we started in Texas uh, back in the 90s and uh, Foley thought, well, that's a great event. And, and, and you know, we've gotten off to a, a great start in Chicago and talking about doing it in other cities. So, you know, there's been very open receptiveness to, you know, what are things that we can learn from each of the legacy firms to make the combined firm you know, even better? Wow, you just said something that's maybe lost on those who haven't worked in a lot of law firms, but you basically said, we're willing to change and we're willing to do new things, which I think sounds like an obvious answer, but I think it's actually something that larger law firms struggle with and I think is a a testament. And we see that um, continuing now with Foley and some of the more innovative things we're we're embracing both on the client side of the house and then supporting our, our people. So I want to be mindful of the time and I'm going to ask a couple of my final questions and we'll see where we go in our last few minutes. But the the first question is, is there anything you wanted to touch on that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about yet? You know, one, one of the things I'll, I'll say this, because this is something I've I've said in other settings before, and it's a little bit of a hard thing to say. So uh, and we, we maybe you can chop out what I'm getting ready to say. Maybe we'll chop this out later. But, you know, Foley does have great people. And I, I am always so appreciative of the opportunities that I've had, you know, back at Gardeer before the combination, even back at Sula Rig, certainly, and, and now at Foley to meet such great people. I'm careful about how I say that. I think we have great people. I think there are lots of great people in lots of places. There, there are a lot of good people in this world. I think what is and I'm not going to say that it's unique about Foley, but what is really great about Foley is not only do we have the great people, but we have this cultural focus of focusing on the relationships between the people and of the development of our people and you know of this collaborative spirit and of this wanting to make sure that we have you know really strong integration and that we work together. And so I think it's important to recognize that, yes, there are lots and lots of great people. And the last thing that I would ever say is that any other law firm or business or whoever, there are tons of great people uh, that I've had the opportunity to work with, you know, many, many, many times. What I love about Foley is we do have great people and we have great people who have really strong relationships with each other. Yeah, I almost would describe it as, uh, you know, the the. The heart, the organizational heart, I think, of the firm is in the right place. And I yeah. know some feedback that we'll get from from clients. And I actually think this is really high praise, but speaking to what you're saying is we will tell clients if we're not the best fit for their need because it goes back to the, the we care about the relationship. We are great at so much, but there's a lot of different, you know, practice areas and things that clients need. And it, and it may be the case that you really want us for X, but if you're doing this, you know, this thing with Y, you know, that's not so much us, but I've heard clients say they really value that because it shows how much we value the relationship and doing the right thing and viewed as a long-term partnership. But just one example, I feel like there's a tremendous amount of self-awareness that the firm deploys, which I, I really appreciate. So my final substantive question for you, though, is what's your some overarching advice to that law student or that attorney early in their career? Perhaps it's that thing you wish somebody had told you were when you were in that same position. And this, this is really hard to do. But look around the corner. You said a few minutes ago, you know, about 
in some places there may be more resistance to change than, than in other places. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, you better change. I mean, if you're not going to change, you're going to get left behind. I don't know what practice areas are going to unfold. You know, uh, we, we have some great examples here in the firm. where We have this, you know, this incredible telemedicine expertise, you know, where, 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 where we had some great lawyers who have invented that basically out of whole cloth from something that I think didn't even exist 15 years ago. They were looking around the corner. They found something and they now have great expertise and a great reputation that's really helped the Foley brand in that area. You know, there are other things that have evolved up and down over the course of the years. So be looking for what's next. You know, space. What's going to happen in space? Is, uh, you know, we had, I, I, I've, I've said this before, and I was really, it made me happy a couple of weeks ago. Somebody sent around at one of those internal emails. They needed somebody with some, with some expertise on a space-related issue. I don't remember what the specific thing was. What's going to happen there? I don't know what's going to happen there. Is that going to become a thing where there are going to be lots of developments over the course of time and somebody's going to get to be the, you know, the leading expert in that? And it's going to be really fun and exciting, you know, possibly. I don't know. But the, but my key point is just be looking for that. Don't sort of develop an expertise and think you can sit on that expertise. And that's what you're going to do for the rest of your career. It's going to change. Be looking for things that are interesting to you, uh, that are exciting to you, and that could provide the next sort of rung along the ladder of your career uh, for you to continue to develop. I think that is fantastic advice. And um, to what we were talking about earlier about how we are helping clients reach goals and helping clients solve problems. Looking, looking for the next problem that you can help, you know, be an expert in solving. Uh, and then my last question, Claude, is if people have comments or questions and want to find you and send on Foley's website and send you an email, can they feel free to reach out? Of course they can, anytime, that'd be great. All right, well, thank you so much for being on the show, Claude. You bet. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.